Good morning. Welcome this morning. Just a reminder, uh, we've kind of switched things up for springtime here, so a little bit of a shorter sermon, and then you're welcome after that, when church ends, to to stay for discussion groups, because um, just an opportunity for us to talk with people here about uh, some of the things that have come up in the sermon, and probably more particularly the direction in which God is leading us. So you're welcome to stay for those discussion groups, but you also don't feel like you have to. So it's a bit of a bonus. You're like, oh, getting out a little bit early today. If you choose that, uh, uh, that you need to go, that's fine. Many of those of us who have done kind of study in Christian ministry, theology, and practice have come across some people that you may have come across they're known in history as the Desert Fathers. There's mothers, too, desert mothers, too, Abbas and Amas. These are people who, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, around 5th century, uh, went out into the desert, lived in cells and caves, and kind of left the city. They're very engaged with the world. They weren't hermits, as some people kind of negatively say. But uh, some of their sayings have come down to us through the years, and they're beautiful and trite and wonderful, and I want to start with one. There was a gathering of people to deal with somebody's sin. So you can just imagine who that might be. So we've come together here, and we've heard that so-and-so is sinning, and we're going to have a meeting and determine what to do about that, all right? And one of the desert fathers was asked to come and be part of the judgment, part of the panel who would pronounce judgment. And this person, whoever it was, was called out for their sin, and they were cast out from the community. So I guess they got up and walked out. And as they were getting up to walk out, that desert father, who was deeply respected by everybody there, stood up and walked out as well, along with the person. And people stopped them and said, why are you leaving? And he said, I thought this was the time that sinners left. Did you used to believe, any of you here, some of this would be an age thing, that if someone committed suicide, they automatically went to hell? That was taught in many places in the Christian church. There's all kinds of things in that statement, first of all. Suicide, death, judgment, hell, all kinds of things that we'd have to unpack. But that was a teaching. Do you still believe that? I don't believe that. I think we've learned a great deal. What it means is that there are things that many of you, some of you, used to believe that you don't believe anymore. You think differently. In Luke chapter 4, I think this should be somewhat of an important text for us as we consider vision and moving forward as a church, and more importantly than as a church with walls, kind of as a group of people living out our faith in the community. The context is that Jesus is just beginning his earthly ministry. This is after the temptation in the desert, and it's one of the first times that he's gone to church, gone to synagogue in this case, and he's reading from the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and they love him, they think he's fantastic. He reads and he pronounces some kind of messianic declaration. He says that these words are fulfilled in your hearing. But by the end of his time, I like it particularly because he goes to sit down after he's read, And they're just, the room is filled with praise towards him. 
Who is this? He must have some kind of authority. He's fantastic. We're so glad he's our leader. Or will become that. But within minutes, they're trying to kill him. And you can see why. When I was a young person, I'm not sure that people did this intentionally, but maybe I just picked it up in my own ignorance. I seem to have this text read to me, or, it, or I interpreted it, that they were upset that he was kind of claiming to be the Messiah. It's not super clear that's what was happening, but it's certainly not why the people were upset. When he's claiming authority and pronouncing God's favor, and somehow saying that he's the fulfillment of that favor, nobody is upset. When do they get upset? When he says, you know what, you people are going to reject me. And prophets not welcome in their hometown, this type of thing. And then he gives these two examples. This woman who experienced this miracle and Naaman the Syrian. These were both outsiders. So God's taking, Jesus is taking something that the people know. They have their faith secure. They know exactly what they believe to some degree. And they know how to make sense of other people. And Jesus from the scriptures is saying, who did God bless even back then? He went outside of our community of belief and blessed other people. And then they were filled with wrath, the text says. Because that's always upsetting to people who think, if people thought like we thought, then everything would be okay. We have what everybody needs. Jesus seemed to be assaulting that in some way. How God works and who God is beyond the bounds of preconceived ideas. My kind of approach this morning in, these are more talks than sermons in the spring, is to say that we need to know our stories. Jesus upsets the static status quo. That's a bit of a summary that we don't need to go into. Um, this picture. I don't think I did this here. I've done this in a few places, and I stole it from a professor at Columbia Bible College named David Workington. Um, but this is a picture of Sumas Plain. I don't think I've shown this here yet, have I? No. So Sumas Plain is Fraser Valley, effectively. And my last name is Weeb, good Mennonite name, and if I go out to the valley, I'm with my people. And they'll all say, are you related to a Harry or to, you know, Abram Weeb? Which Abram Weeb? You know, are, are all the names. And they would know, and I'd be like, I'd fit in. Because what happened is, and here's the story that people would tell, and this professor, David Workington, told this story. He says, I'm a settler as well. I'm from the Mennonite heritage, and this is the story of our people. I'll tell it briefly. I'm going to get him to come and speak to some of us who are interested in the future vision of the church, and he'll tell the story better. But he says, here's the story of Sumas Plain. People came from Europe. They were persecuted in many ways. They came and settled here. And this was a big bog, like a marshy nothing. And they drained it. And they turned it into fertile land. And they've supported generations of people, raised kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids, and made industry and produced wealth and settled there and grown in their faith. That's a beautiful, wonderful story. And if you are growing up there now, you might know some of that story, but not all. But it's important, I think, to know your story. This is a picture of the same place in the early 1920s. This is called Sumas Lake. This is what they drained. 
Sumas Lake was the entire life and well-being for the Stolo people. First Nations people who lived in the area at that time and still do. They derive their identity, their economy from this lake. Two stories. What I'm saying is it's going to help us as we're moving forward as a church to know our story and to listen to the stories of other people. When the people were upset at Jesus in this text, they were upset because he assaulted their story, or actually he assaulted what they knew was right, but they didn't necessarily know why they thought like they did. And so all I'm going to do this morning is give you a little bit of a history lesson with a few pieces. How did Sutherland Church get to be who we are right now? Where did Sutherland Church come from? What's our story? And I'll do it briefly, don't worry. And I'm not saying that this is exhaustive and you can say that's not quite true. And I'll say, well, yes, there's other contours. Sutherland Church comes from a Plymouth Brethren background, a group of people that called themselves the Plymouth Brethren. Various reasons in terms of geography, in Europe. But uh, basically the Plymouth Brethren were part of a larger group of people that in the early 1900s were coalescing around one another. So Plymouth Brethren was part of that. But then some of the thinking got into Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, what eventually became Christian Missionary Alliance. And even Pentecostals, they partnered with the Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches, though they weren't really the same. The foundational aspect that all of those groups shared was an understanding of, of Scripture, and particularly end times, called premillennialism. Do you know what that means? Isn't this amazing? I'm not castigating you for this. Many of us, many of you don't know what that means, but you come to a church where that is a key place, a key factor in the identity of this church from early on. Premillennialism means this. In Revelation, there's a concept, there's an idea. Now, much in Revelation is figurative, but then some people make this literal and make, so that's biblical interpretation. There's a thousand years, a millennia. And many Christians before those early 1900s when people coalesced around a different idea said that there's a thousand years of peace that will come before Jesus comes back. Got it? And we as humans will usher in those thousand years. So through doing good works, through helping the poor, through living a gospel that is more social, maybe, than kind of like you should pray this prayer, through making the world better, this thousand years will come, and then Jesus will come at the end of those thousand years. Right? That's called post-millennialism. Jesus comes after the thousand years. What premillennialism does is says, no, he comes before. But it's a big and important shift. Here's why. Because these people are saying the world is getting better, and the premillennialist said the world is only getting worse it doesn't matter what we do. God is going to judge this place, and that's all that matters. And Jesus will come back, and then there'll be a thousand years. It deeply affects how you live your faith. Now, in our tradition, a man named John Nelson Darby, who, um, more open brethren, which is where our faith, our practice comes from, kind of rejected in some ways, but John Nelson Darby came up with this concept then called the rapture. Any of you heard that? 
This was not taught until the late 1800s. Nobody, to our knowledge, took the Bible and said there's a thing called the rapture until the late 1800s. Isn't that interesting? And John Nelson Darby said, as part of this premillennialism, there are eras in Christian history called dispensations, and then when Jesus, before that there's going to be a rapture where the faithful, the Christians, disappear, right? And all those who aren't will be left for this terrible tribulation. And so you get movies where, you know, a pilot disappears and the plane crashes and all this kind of stuff. It's all part of this premillennialism. And what they did was they took scripture then, Christian scripture, and they said the key to understanding Christian scripture is Jesus is coming back soon. So when you have a certain belief, you often don't think that your belief has interpretation in it, but it does. And the key interpretive thread for for these people was Jesus is coming again soon. That will help us understand all of the scriptures. And so then they started doing things like saying, well, this, this equals the Antichrist, this equals this. They, right? Some of you know some of that stuff, can relate to some of that history. Because it was the early 1900s, what happened is in the lead up to World War I, and then as World War I started, many of these people said, obviously, this world war, this terrible war, this great war, is going to usher in Armageddon. The, the, the end, this terrible war in Revelation having to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, they started predicting, many of them, not all, the coming of Jesus. And all of those predictions, of course, were wrong. They would say he's going to come at this time, some, and then he's going to come at this time. And then they would say, look at all these signs, he's coming again right away. wasn't quite right away. They also, because of this idea that the world is getting worse and worse, they then developed a really aggressive stance towards people who didn't think like they did and towards sin. So this slide, for example, is um, the cover of a magazine. There were a lot of Sunday school magazines and, and little journals and stuff that were, that were passed around. This one was called The King's Business. And this has the cross the American flag, and it says signs of the times, despising of government, wars, Bolshevism, Bolshevism, isms of all kinds, apostasy, infidelity, sensualism. So they would say, this is all of the terrible, terrible things. These are all the terrible things that are happening. And so we're the ones who can stand against this. This is part of our heritage. This means we, and certainly isn't all bad, but it is the idea. And then to add to it, this is Billy Sunday, not, not a Plymouth Brethren by any means. Uh, he was a baseball player, and he became the most effective preacher in, in this particular era, early 1900s. Thousands and thousands of people came to Christ through his ministry, but he was a bit nasty too. But man, could he bring in the crowds. I got some quotes from him that I won't read in the sermon, but Billy Sunday. And then what they added to this kind of and, and they would speak strongly against particularly theology that came from Germany or something like that. Why? Because World War I, that was your enemy. So then your enemy is cast as kind of demon or devil, right? But then what they added to it then, some people call the culture wars, they said, now really the real precipitous cliff here is, is this cultural sin. 
So they would say, there are five, I don't remember all the five, there are five things that are terrible. The card table, something else, the movie house, movies were like, no, no, no. (laughs) Some of that criticism became racist and prejudice. They would speak against Jewish people saying there's like some, not all, there's this control. And in then trying to figure out when the rapture was going to happen and when Jesus is coming, they would say, obviously, after World War I, obviously the League of Nations represents this ten-headed thing from Revelation. Uh, There was often those kinds of things. I became a Christian around the time that, like, the guys who seemed to be really, really into this were getting old by that time. But I still picked up the edge that they were really into, like, biblical prophecy. and, And now I know where it comes from. So adding these culture wars, here's a quote from one of the preachers. Not Billy Sunday. He would have said worse than this. This is a man who is, in a sermon, preaching against dancing. Okay? And he's telling you why dancing is wrong. But somehow, in the quote, he manages to, I would say, um, he manages to be misogynist towards women. He manages to, to kind of insult people who don't match his level of manliness, I suppose. And I think he has a pretty bad understanding of sexuality. Here's the quote. And, and I wonder about his moral makeup when I read this. But anyway... In a sermon, only a fossilized octogenarian or a self-complacent mollycoddle, these are good words, with ice water in his veins or a dandified dude or a society sissy or a pleasure cloyed Don Juan or a vitiated fop who doesn't know whether he's a man or a woman could dance with a throbbing, beautiful young woman with about half her body exposed and the other half clothed largely with good intentions and have nothing stronger than Sunday school maxims running through his head. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. By the time I became a Christian, I picked up, now it wasn't this bad, but kind of an aggressive edge in the language of a lot of people who were really known as super faithful ones. I see now where some of it came from. So many of you have assumed, this is a character I'm giving of it. This is Amy Semple McPherson. She was more in the Pentecostal tradition. She had large connections in Canada. Um, and she traveled across the United States in this car with another relative of hers, two women, when this would not be done. She became a super super popular preacher, opened up a temple in Los Angeles, a big church called Angelus with a U temple. Thousands and thousands of people went there. And she adopted John Nelson Darby's view of the rapture, so so much so that she sold burial plots. She, She bought cemeteries, and if you were connected to the church, you could buy plots and hers was in the center of of the cemetery and the ones closer to her were way more expensive because she said if she didn't get raptured and she died then when she was raised up out of the grave you'd get raised up quicker if you were closer to her and so those were more expensive but I tell you what lots of people came to Jesus through her ministry this car on it, it says Jesus is coming soon get ready everything was about Jesus coming soon A man named, take a few more minutes, a man named Lyman Stewart, he made his money in oil. And in 1891, he started what was called, again in California, the Pacific Gospel Union. This became the Los Angeles Rescue Mission. We get Union Gospel Mission from this. That's the movement. He said, as he 
then adopted this premillennial view. He said only the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he started the missions to help people, maybe a little more in this first view, and then he was converted more to the second, to the other view. And then he said, well, we're still going to help people, but really, what's the difference in giving them a bowl of soup? What they really need is Jesus, right? Because all you can do, all you can do if things are getting worse and worse is rescue people. And so Lyman Stewart said, only the gospel of Christ has the power to save men. Humanitarian work may make their condition here more comfortable and their surroundings more pleasant, but only the gospel can be of permanent value to them. So the concept of salvation in this understanding is summed up with rescue. We'll pull a few out. And it was largely effective. And many of you in your upbringing know the language of that. Your ear is attuned to it. The supreme duty of the church today is not to patch up a wrecked world, but to get out to get out of the lifeboats and take as many souls as possible off the wreck. So I'm just asking you to consider in your own upbringing how this has impacted your view of God and Jesus Christ. And I also want to tell you it's all of this we can it's not the only way of thinking. This was only the early 1900s that this really found its shape. In Luke 4, Jesus says God, God's miracles went to these people outside. It was very upsetting to these people who had an idea of what it meant to believe. And for us, what I want to tell you is that while I can appreciate our heritage, as we move forward in vision, I think real leadership will tell you this and be honest about this. It's not just what programs and plans and stuff can we add to try to draw more people in, Right? Real people talking about vision will say, where have we come from? And what do we need to hold on to in that? And what can we let go of? And if you tell me we can't let go of anything, I'll say, why don't we go and have coffee? Now remember, you've already changed some of your beliefs. It's very assaulting to people to say, And this is true of any group of believers. Some of the ways that we have presented this are not all great. For me, the key shift, and I know this world, I came to faith to a large degree in this world that I described, but for me the key shift is a shift away from fear to hope. Cyrus Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield. You know the name? You know the name, don't you? He was a lawyer and someone who fought for the Confederacy in the United States. So he was on the pro-slavery side in the United States. A lot of this in the U.S., there were other places as well, but a lot of this kind of fomented and grew after the Civil War, largely because there was disappointment over the victory of the North. And it was used to say, well, terrible things have happened. God has kind of, you know, bad things have happened, and we don't like the way the world is, and so let's draw a negative picture of the world. Schofield was a lawyer, really smart guy. In my reading, they called him a bit of a scoundrel, and that just made me interested. What did he do? But it didn't say. And he came to faith in this premillennial understanding, and then he took his Bible. It wasn't a phone. It was an actual Bible. He took his Bible... And it's on, right? Okay. 
He took his Bible and then took all of this premillennial understanding and every time he would come across a text, he would just write notes in his Bible. And guess what that became? The Schofield Reference Bible. And some of you here know what that is. And it had tremendous impact on this movement, even into people would have known what that was when I first started coming to Sutherland in the late 1980s. Vision will look at where we've come from and say, where is God leading us? What do we need to add? But please be courageous enough to ask the question, what do we need to discard? Look at Jesus Christ. These people were preaching Jesus, but there's something about it that, and maybe it's a characterization, and I think they did wonderful things, and, but the aggression and the fear and the um, two-dimensionalizing of people who didn't think like them, I, it just feels so different than Jesus to me. It feels more like fear in human religion. We owe these people something, not to just repeat what they did, not to just preach what they were preaching, but to do better. They talked about hope. I think we can have a bigger hope than just rescuing a few people. So my Lord Jesus Christ speaks to the woman at the well, this outsider, this Samaritan, and just listen how he speaks to her. Listen how he says that he knows she thirsts. And not only can he satisfy that thirst, but from her can flow streams of living water. Look at Jesus and the paralytic. This way, and I'm grateful for it, emphasized, the key thing in this way was actually human decision. Human decision and declaration is more important than what God has done for you because what God has done for you is ineffective until you say this particular thing. What that means is the the key switch is human. We have to wrestle with that because if we don't appropriate what God has done for us, it's obviously going to be, to a large degree, ineffective. But we want to be careful about putting the emphasis on human action rather than God's love and grace. So the paralytic is raised down from the roof. You know the story, right? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Read the text. He never repented of his sins. What's happening? I'm not telling you what to think. I'm just saying, listen to our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus and all of the outcasts, the the ones who didn't fit, and they were so drawn to him that they couldn't stay away from him, no matter how much the religious people tried to tell them they were unacceptable. We have a faith of tremendous hope. And I'm going to ask you to grow up again. It might be hard on some of you. This idea that there are things that need to be discarded might be hard on some of you because you've never considered that a possibility. No, we've always believed this. Obviously, it's the only way. Please learn your story. And pray. And ask God to lead us. We're going to turn to a time of communion before we break into our groups. Let's pray together. We'll take the offering after the communion as well.
Lord Jesus Christ, we're reminded as we turn to receive the bread and the cup that you have given your life for the life of this world. Holy Spirit, by your power and presence as we receive now, would you spark our minds and hearts and faith to see that what you have done is bigger than what we can think or imagine. We know that in this there is forgiveness of sins as we put our faith and our trust in you. So as we receive, may we do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Ushers,